Salem, Hilosolima, Al-Quds, Beit al-Maqdis, the holy city, the city of peace. It's hard to say which of this earth's cities have been fought over the most, but any list will need to include Jerusalem, the object of desire for three of the world's major religions, steeped in bloodshed from its earliest days until its most recent, but also in periods of relatively stable cooperation and coexistence. Today, we'll talk about the patterns of peace and war with respect to medieval Jerusalem and about what causes men to give their lives for the city of peace. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to welcome today John D. Hosler, who is the professor of military history at the Command and General Staff College and author most recently of Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of War and Peace. John, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So before we get into the military history of medieval Jerusalem, which is our subject today, I'd be interested just to hear a little bit about you and, and how you got into this subject matter generally. And, you know, you, you teach military officers, I presume predominantly U.S. Army officers, about military history and strategy. One, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field. And two, explain the relevance of your specialty to what, you know, majors and lieutenant colonels and, and so forth want to need to learn today. Right. So, you know, I've been doing military history for a long time. Before I came here to to CGSC, I was actually at a tenured post out in Baltimore, Maryland for about 12 years. So, I was, you know, teaching history there and and researching military affairs and that sort of thing. I concentrated on all that in graduate school and decided to come out here because I wanted the experience of being in this this military history department because we have a whole department for it here, right? All told, I think we have 30 or 31 military historians working through our department. So it's this great nexus of sort of intellectual activity. And, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I've, it's something I've been studying my whole career. Here at CGSC, it's, it's a little different because, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, my, sold, my officers are, they're all captain promotables or majors, predominantly Army, but we have all of the sister services here as well as well as interagency personnel as well. So sometimes I'll have students from the State Department or you know, Merchant Marine or USAID or something like that. And, and their interest really is, is much more in what we call applied history, right? So they're going to go off and serve as officers on staffs, battalion level staffs. They're going to have to do planning. They're going to be exos, that sort of thing. And we're trying to give them some historical context and some knowledge to inform their future decision making. So that's what we do with history here. And we all teach the same thing for most of the year, all of our faculty, which really is not in my particular research field at all. We start with the 17th century in the Netherlands, and then we move forward and we just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago with Operation Iraqi Freedom. So it, it's much more in the modern scope of things. My role here is to teach my specialty in the electives period, which is about to start where we have opportunities. So I'll teach courses on medieval warfare, the Crusades, the medieval Near East, that sort of thing. And to answer your second question, I think 
the pitch I make anyway to, to legitimize myself here is if you are a military professional and you are deploying to CENTCOM or if you've, you've, you've been in CENTCOM or if you want to know about the issues in that part of the world, you really have to know medieval history. It's, it's inescapable. To, uh, you, you, you can't go there and not know it. I mean, you, you, the level of your ignorance would be profound because it's in the Middle Ages that Islam is founded. It is in the Middle Ages that the heart of a lot of the disputes that go on in the Middle East can really be found. They all originate in the, uh, in the several centuries of, the, uh, of the, the Middle Ages period. So what I, I tell them is I say, look, yeah, we're studying bladed weapons and, and horseback charges and castle sieges, and this is not how you operate anymore. And I'm, never, I'm not going to try to convince you that it ever will be. But the principles behind them remain largely the same. How do you run operations in an expeditionary sense where you're 3,000 miles away from home with a coalition of allies who don't necessarily speak the same languages against a common enemy, which itself is disintegrated and has really no unity whatsoever if they're Turks or Arabs or Bedouins or Kurds or, or what have you. It's a fractured environment much like today. And so navigating all of the challenges of, of moving an army to the Near East, of, of operating, of sustaining, of fighting, of keeping the force together in adverse conditions, all of those remain the same. You're just, you're using vehicles instead of horses and, and ox-driven carts. But, but, the, but the ideas are, are, are still the same. And moreover, the middle, medieval period contains something that I don't think the officers get very much of here or really anywhere else in, in professional military education. And that's the religious aspect. When you do medieval history, it's it's inescapable. And so my classes, we talk a lot about just war, holy war, crusade, jihad, the the notions undergirding this, the the, the law undergirding it, the theology, all of the different movements. And uh, and I try to stress to them that it's great to look at you look at operational planning, you look at the terrain and the and the politics and the time and all these things you need to wage a good campaign. But you can't forget those cultural things. And even though today we may look back and say, well, the first crusade, that was almost a thousand years ago. That doesn't matter anymore. The reality is different in the Middle East. People, even if they don't know much about it, they remember the time of the crusades in a generalized sense. And so I try to equip them for being out there and not just equip them for a particular job they're going to have, but for being in the area and, and, and understanding something about it. That's really interesting. And, and then on this subject of, of Jerusalem specifically, and I realize I could ask this question and turn off my mic and just sort of sit back for the next few days, but with, with, le with less time on the clock than that, because there are other questions I'd like to ask, what is it about Jerusalem that makes it the focus of such intense and you know, re repeated military campaigning? Because it's not, just to, 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 to steal some observations from your book, it's not a site of particular physical strategic significance and seems not to have been, at least in, in, in recorded memory. So what, what is it about Jerusalem that everyone is always fighting over it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the holy sites. There are other lingering aspects of it in terms of you know, heritage of certain groups and tribes that had resided there for a long time. And you do have the, some kinds of those connections. At, at one point, it's a, you know, it's a frontier outpost of the Byzantine Empire. And so it's viewed as, as sort of an, as a defensive as a part of the defensive scheme and so important for that. But at the heart of it, really, it's the holy sites. And there's a, there's a huge debate over 
the significance of those sites for Islam and when exactly they become prominent. And the specialists will go back and forth about, well, you know, when was the Temple Mount absolutely critical to Islam? The story is that the Prophet Muhammad went there during the night journey, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the site itself was revered consistently. And so it does take a while, we think, with the, with the Muslim side to recognize these places as, as absolutely critical. But there is no doubt that before Islam was a religion, the city is critical for Judaism and Christianity in, in a spiritual sense, because you have the, the site of the temple, Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple after that. And you have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre standing over the purported site of Jesus's resurrection, his, his burial and resurrection. And so for two of the three Abrahamic religions, those roots run incredibly deep and the city has tremendous meaning. And then for Islam, it develops meaning over time. And by the time you get to the age of the Crusades, everybody thinks it's an important city. And that's not just, I would say, because of physical buildings. And, and, and kind of moments in history where you can say, well, this happened on this spot. That is a big part of it. But increasingly, what medievalists have been looking at is sort of the next part of the story. If you look at this from an apocalyptic point of view, all those sites are likewise crucial in the age expected to come, ushering in the end of the world and these what we call eschatological notions about end times. So you have a situation where, you know, important things happen then. Important things are going on there now, and the most important things are still to come, which means it will always remain, it must always remain a place of significance from a religious point of view. And I think that's what makes it different from the other cities around that are better connected to trade routes, frankly, with bigger populations, more bustling economies. You can think for most of the book, if you think of cities like, like Tyre and Damascus and Cairo, these are much bigger metropolitans, as Baghdad especially, much bigger you know, metro, metropolitans with, with cosmopolitan populations and major trade and economic roles. And then you have a little Jerusalem sitting off the trade routes, never amounting to more than 30,000 people living there at any time in the Middle Ages, usually much smaller, but it has the holy sites. And because of that, it, it, is, it is forever different. Yeah, it's that. Uh... Studying Jerusalem seems to me like a fascinating way to study repeated examples of, of, of politics and of, and of military action conducted less with material interests in mind and more with, if you, if you like, and, and you might have a better way to phrase this, but sort of idealistic concerns in mind. We really are fighting for, you know, we're talking about jihads or crusades or what have you, sort of talking about fighting over ideas, right, and conceptions. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, there's not much to be gained by actually taking the physical city of Jerusalem. Yeah. It's a fortified city. It's an outpost. There's there's not a, a massively plentiful supply of water. It's it's it doesn't live amongst fields where you can grow all of this wonderful you know produce to to consume. It's it's really more for the and and that's one thing that that historians have kind of centered on because sort of the idea of Jerusalem, not only the physical possession of it, but just what it means to people. Having that is important. Whether and we see lots of onlookers, I think of somebody like Saladin, for example, the expectation of the Muslim intellectual community is that he needs to get the city back. Most of that community has never been to Jerusalem. They haven't, there's no photography. They haven't seen pictures of it, right? They don't have any connection with it, but it, but it, it becomes an imperative. You have to get that city for what it means. And that's, that's a very powerful, powerful draw. Indeed. Yeah, true to this day. So I, I'm looking here towards the back of your book at the start of your, uh, your back matter. There's this wonderful table 
of all the times in the period that you've you've selected for the books are running from the seventh century through to the to the thirteenth century. All the times that Jerusalem changed hands in you know coercive fashion. I think I just counted, so my number might be. It looks like nineteen, nineteen separate occasions that you were chronicling. Yeah, and that's. And there's, there's kind of a funny story about that. I counted 19 and we went to press and I said, okay, 19 seasons of Jerusalem. And, and you know what happens, right? As soon as I approved the proofs for the book, I found a 20th. So, <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really, I think it's really 20, but you know, 19, 20. Oh, fix, fix it in the paperback. Fix it in the paperback. So why don't we, well, let me actually, let me ask a broad question and then we can zoom in on some of these. The, the broad question is, you know, what are, what are the continuities over these, what, seven centuries of, of warfare? What are the patterns that reemerge over and over again? So for continuities, and we've already alluded to this a little bit, the, the draw is certainly you know, a continuous thing. I think the major one that I found for that I argue for in the book is the counterintuitive one. Normally, people would say the, the theme is warfare. The theme is conflict, holy strife. And I think, yeah. There is that if you want to look at all the events, obviously 19 or 20 attacks on the city, that's that's a lot. I, I would say, though, that that's across 600 years. So you kind of space those out a little bit. And there's one period that goes over 300 years where there's no attacks at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a concentration of them in the in the high Middle Ages period. So what that led to me to, to consider is whether there's another theme. And the one I argue for is that the theme is actually and I always hesitate using this word because it means something different now, is what I would call tolerance. Not in the modern sense, but in the medieval sense. The idea that we have in this city a diverse group of people praying in different ways, believing in different things from different ethnic backgrounds, all different persuasions, who probably don't like each other very much, but have over the centuries found a way to live with each other to tolerate the mere presence of the person next door, while at the same time really wishing that, you know, that person was actually a Muslim or that person was actually a Christian. I I don't like what they believe in, but that's a neighbor, that's a customer in my store, that's a part of the community, and for better or worse, we're kind of all in this together. And I've been able to track, I think, over 600 years, that as what I would say the dominant theme of life in Jerusalem. And it makes it different than other places in the Near Eastern world during the Middle Ages that don't have that, where you have much more constant civil strife, much more constant warfare. I mean, 20 attacks on Jerusalem is one thing. I cannot, I don't think I can even count the times Damascus has been attacked. Mm. It's off the charts, right? It's it's always getting attacked. And and in places like that, the, you don't have these, these, these kind of wonderful communities with people praying next to each other, whereas in Jerusalem, you, you really do. There's this one anecdote I point out in the, in the 11th century where things are getting a little gritty in, in, in the holy city, and one of the, the Muslim law schools, the Maliki school, I believe, decides to, to pick up and move. They say, look, we're, it, life is no good here. There's, you know, there's been some problems. We're going to move and we're going to go to Tyre. So we're just moving. We're taking, picking up the law school and, and we're moving. And what's shocking is before they do, they go to their Jewish compatriots in town and they say, hey, you should get your yeshiva and bring it with us. Why don't we go to Tyre together? And you see this very strange things to a Jewish law school and a Muslim law school. They pick up their roots. They pack up all their students. And together they move over to Tyre because it's a much more interesting city and it's a safer place to be. That, that absolutely extraordinary. That is not the kind of thing you hear about or even think about when you think about 
you know, the, the age of the Crusades. And yet that happens, that event happens not too, not too long before the first crusade arrives. Well, let's, let's go to the, the start of your account. And there are a couple of, the first one's pretty, I, I take your point, but the first one's pretty savage. The, the first handover of Jerusalem that you, you chronicle in the book, right? Which is a, a Persian seizure from the Byzantines, if I'm not mistaken. Tell, tell us, paint, paint us a picture of what Jerusalem means to the Byzantines and to, to, to the Christians and Jews who, who live there at the beginning of the seventh century. What, what, what do they have in their minds? They, you know, that's a, that's a great question because you do have a Christian and Jewish community in Jerusalem at the time. They are living side by side, but their outlook on, on life and, and our sources are, are very sketchy. They're always very, very partial in this, in this particular part of the seventh century. So we don't have a great grasp on what they were thinking, but if I were to speculate, I would say life is a lot more rosy there under, if, if you're a Christian living under Byzantine rule than it is for the Jews. The city has its its meaning clearly. I mean, there is a a church built over the holy tomb for the Christians. It does have the uh, the wood of the purported true cross that Jesus died on. Um, and then you also have Jews in the city worshiping and, and caring about their daily lives. But at that time, life was pretty difficult for Jews in that 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 period of the Byzantine Emperor Empire. The Emperor Heraclius is is not known as a friend to Judaism. He carried out, later he would carry out a, a directed pogrom against all Jews in North Africa and, and the Middle East, in which you, you have forced conversions and executions and these sorts of things. But even before that happens, there are a number of oppressive actions taken by the Byzantines to drive out Jews from their customary neighborhoods and different cities to discriminate against them and, and even put them to death. So life is not good if, if you were a Jew at that time, it's, you can maintain, you can, in a sense, you can endure it, but, but it's certainly not any, anyone's idea of a, of a paradise or, you know, a pleasant living. And when the Persians show up, you, you kind of see this because they're coming from a, a non-Christian, non-Jewish persuasion. There doesn't appear to be any really religious motivation when they come to the city in 614. They're there for plunder as part of a, a larger war. And you see the Jews very quickly jump to the side of the Persians. Right, they, they join in with the attackers, which tells you a lot about what's going on inside the city. Normally, it'd be the reverse. It'd be the, the besieged mentality. We all have to work together or we're all going to die. And instead, it's, no, we're, we're with the, you know, you call them bad guys. We're with them because we're frankly sick of how you've been treating us. Yeah. In, in your account of the sort of a series of linked episodes, right, this combination of civil strife and then, you know, foreign invaders, despite the sort of overlay of Abrahamic religions, it, it, it could it could be an episode out of Thucydides, right? Like all the same sort of dynamics of, of a city tearing itself apart because of the tensions built into the city. And then you have, you know, a foreign marauder that's being sort of dragged into those politics that felt very familiar. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think if you look at any, any city that's, that's under siege for a considerable amount of time, right, well, you should point out whether it's Athens, right? Whether it's, it's Rome or Jerusalem or, or someplace else. You're going to have those kinds of, of fights that go on. You know, for Jerusalem, the most famous one is the one I don't cover in the book, really, is the, the, the Roman sack of 70 AD, where, you know, Josephus's account is just, I mean, everyone is turning against everyone. And if you are insufficiently zealous, then the garrison itself is going to come after you, you know, and, and, you know, the deprivations that are in the city and eating shoe leather and those kinds of things to survive. All of that, the longer siege goes on, is just get magnified and magnified. And as you point out, in you know, in 614, 
there had been some problems in the city anyway. You have this rampant gang warfare that's going on and these kind of localized retributive acts, which is already setting a tone of this isn't exactly a unified community, right? Yeah, but yeah. the Persians show up at, at the perfect time to, to attack. So the, the Jewish community then sort of quite rationally, in a way, aligns itself with the Persians. How does that work out for the Jewish community when the Byzantines uh, come back? So, yeah, it works out for them in the short term, but not in the long term, for sure. And there's these, you know, these these sort of sordid accusations of Jews ransoming Christian prisoners and executing them and these sorts of things. It, it's a little murky what happens when the when the siege is over. There is some I would throw it in the, the genre of apocalyptic literature that makes the claim that that there was actually a sort of Jewish governorship of the city very soon after the, the siege ended, where where it's actually the Jews running the show. And no one agrees on that because the, the, the evidence you read it and you're like, oh, this is, yeah, if you look at it in one way, I suppose, but in the other way, it's, it's very difficult to do good source critique on it. So, but it seems to be regardless, two, three years pass where you have this pretty pleasant living. And then in the larger context of the war between Byzantium and Persia, Emperor Heraclius starts to turn things around. And he starts to succeed. And in the 620s, he's going to win his war against Persia. And when that happens, the people who stood against the Byzantines, you, you sort of have to know that the, the hammer is about to drop. And it's not for nothing as Heraclius approaches Jerusalem, as he's supposedly as he's riding towards the city, a group of Jews goes out and sort of meets with him way down the trail and says, hey, can we make a deal, right? So that you won't, can we preserve some rights here? And and he's very amenable to this. You know, he's riding high off a successful campaign and he, he wants to be generous and these sorts of things. And, and he agrees and he says, yeah, you know, don't worry, we're not going to we're not going to do anything to you. Jews are safe. And then as soon as he gets to the city, it all changes because the, the local monks start beg him to, begging him to take revenge because they blame the Jews for all of their all the disasters. And that's when the pogroms start. And it's a series of very ugly episodes with some, frankly, astounding stories. There's one I think of the the monks who say, you know, Heraclius says, well, I can't kill all the Jews. That's murder, right? Isn't murder against, against the, the commandments? And they say, no, 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 don't worry about it. What we'll do is we'll, we'll fast. We'll go on a fast for you. We won't eat eggs, you know, for however many years. And we'll intercede with God and, and it, you'll be okay in front of the big guy. And, they, and then sort of given the clearance by the monastic establishments, all right, well, you know, game on. And then you, you turn this bloody corner. So, so the Jews have, you know, this, this brief interlude where they're free of the, the Christian imperial rule, but it does not last very long. And the punishments are going to be meted out as soon as the, as soon as the Byzantines get the city in their possession again. So staying here again, towards the front of the account for a while. So this, this all occurs, the Byzantines, the Romans, whatever you want to call them, are back in charge. Meanwhile, down in Arabia, things have been percolating. And I realize we're about to wander into deep waters here. You, you, you alluded to this earlier. It was, it's funny. You, I, I should say, by the way, as, as we chat, the, the, the book is really like a really expertly done essay. That's just navigating essay in the, in the, in the best broadest sense of the term, that's just navigating through what is clearly just dizzying, dizzyingly complex, contradictory source material. And, and for readers who, you know, are not themselves scholars of the period doing so in a way that does make it possible to follow and, and, and learn from you know, what it is we actually can know about the period in a way that feels very relevant. So I, I thank you for that. It was a blast for the past for me. You, you referenced Patricia Crone's Hagarism, which, was, which takes me back to, to, to graduate school. But so things are, are percolating down in Arabia. Ultimately, this will result in a Muslim, or a, 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 an Arab seizure of 
of Jerusalem. Why, why do the Arabs come to Jerusalem? So there's a couple answers, I think. One is that it is a outpost garrison protecting the southern edge of, of Syria. It does need to be taken in order to uh, to really have the kind of authority, the territorial authority you want, right? This is on the heels two years beforehand in 636. The Arabs had won this smashing victory at the Battle of Yarmouk. So, and then and then Heraclius famously bids adieu to Syria. He says, so long, good luck, you know, but but I'm leaving. And you you know that you have these towns on the ropes. One by one, they're going to fall. It's just a matter of time. So if you want to extend your the territories of these, these Rashidun caliphs, these successors, then you have to take it, right? You, you need it in, in your wheelhouse. On the other hand, it's there's also that religious straw, right? And this is where some of the confusion comes in with the early Arabic specialists. The how how much do those holy sites mean to the the conqueror whose name is Caliph Umar ibn al-Khattab? How much does it mean to him? Is he taking the city for religious purposes because he's got you know some notion that these are sites holy to Islam, or is it more just kind of the political? You know, this is this is part of my domains now. I argue, I think it gets back to that point I raised earlier about the apocalypticism, that he's got that on his mind. The The most famous Arab account of this early period is written by a historian named Al-Tabari, who commands just, just tremendous respect for his, for his scholarship. And he makes the point that Umar was asking about the gate of mercy on his way to Jerusalem. And that's a reference to what we today call the Golden Gate. It's a gate on the eastern edge of the Temple Mount, where, according to Muslim belief, this is where the Antichrist will be defeated before end times. And it, the Golden Gate figures into Christian and Jewish eschatological stories as well. So to me, I look at that and say, well, if Al-Tabari is telling the truth, and he's writing kind of a ways after the event, but if he is telling the truth, it, it sounds like Umar is captivated on the religious sentiment here. Two other things I think go into that. One is, is recent scholarship. There's been some great books out about early um, millenarianism in Islam and how much of the Quran is, is actually dedicated to end times discussion, with the argument being that it's a lot more than people want to give it credit, right? That, hmm. So that discussion is taking place. Umar himself was skeptical that a guy like Muhammad could even die. When it happens, he refuses to believe it. So, so these ideas of these early nascent Islamic ideas about about the salvation, the end times, messianic things are all kind of floating around. It's in discussion at the time. This is 638. It's it's only been a few years since since Muhammad's death, right? Yeah. So, so there's that. The other piece I think is we tend to forget when you ask modern people about Muslims and how they pray. Muslims pray towards Mecca today. It's very common, but in the beginning they didn't. In the beginning, the, the so-called Qibla, the direction of prayer, was to Jerusalem. And it's not in the Quran, it's in the Hadith, it's in the various sayings attributed to Muhammad, but it's very clear they were praying in the direction of Jerusalem for quite a long time in the beginning, right? And eventually that, that does shift down to Mecca. But I think when you look at all that and say, well, there's tradition of prayer towards that direction, there is this discussion about end times, and Umar himself possibly was, was personally asking about it, to me... My my conclusion was, and, and I'd happy to be disputed on it because, frankly, the evidence is it's thin either way you go. I tend to see it as he wants the city for religious purposes. And in the agreement, when he actually receives the city, there's an agreement with the local patriarch called Umar's Assurance. You know, he essentially gives the rest of the city 
to the Christians. He says, look, well, I'm, you know, I'm in charge, you have to pay taxes, but you can keep all your holy buildings. You can worship however you want, but the temple mount is for Muslims, right? Which had been used as a garbage heap up until mm-hmm. that point. These Christians, what do they care about the, the foundations of the first temple or, or this prophet they've never heard of before? But for Umar, it was absolutely essential. As soon as he enters the city, he goes right to the temple mount and kneels down to pray. So to me, I think it's the religious significance. That's why you take it. Yes, you need to include it in your domains, like most other frontier outposts of the old Byzantine realm. But it's that significance. And attributed to him is the building of the first mosque on the Temple Mount as well. So now if that's true, now he's he's building a religious building. And for me, the, those pieces, they seem to make sense. And so, and just to unpack it for for listeners who you know could be forgiven if, if they have not made a careful study of the six twenties and six thirties and all the attendant <laughs> you mean complexities don't read and resources. About yeah, well, I just want to be clear what we're talking about, which is, and you know, feel free to to challenge this characterization of it. But what we were on some level, what we are talking about is when does Islam, as we understand it today, and as it understands itself today, take take that form? Which is to say, the account in Islam, or I, I should say that the account in early Islamic histories and texts is is relatively straightforward on the questions that we are we are dealing with right here, right? You know, Jerusalem matters for a whole series of very obvious, straightforward reasons to include Muhammad's, Muhammad's you know, nighttime journey and, and, and so forth. Like there's a clear sort of liturgical religious series of, of reasons why Jerusalem would matter. And as as you get into the sources in a more detailed fashion as you have, it's it's less clear what was actually the case at the time versus what appears to be the case in histories that actually, you know, are written hundreds of years later. Is that is that fair? No, I think that's absolutely fair. The, you know, the first century of Islam is a thriving area of study right now, and people are fascinated with it. You have a, it, frankly, it's an evidentiary problem. I mean, you, you're talking about the early days here, right? So it's, the Quran is, is still being compiled. The, if, if you're Muslim, you say, well, those are prophecies, right? And they're, you know, they've been around a long time, but they had been uttered by Muhammad in the process of, of writing them down and putting them together, which takes less than 50 years, right? To it, But you're in that period of assembling the Quran, right? And most of our Arabic sources that are written by Muslims who have kind of the window into that are written much later. So that's a real problem. So you say, okay, well, if I want to know about the 620s and 630s, where do I got my evidence from? And the problem is you have to get it from Christian sources. Those are the contemporary sources. And of course, they are, you know, they have a whole set of biases and their proximity is not as close as you would want. They're not in the court of these caliphs. So how do you treat that evidence? Do you use it? Do you use the earliest Christian sources? Do you rely on the later Muslim sources? Do you do a combination? There's a scholar named Robert Hoyland who spent a lot of time trying to untie all of this. And the result is, I think, what you you stated very well is it's an ongoing debate. When did formalized Islam become a thing? When were converts openly welcomed into the ranks. I mean, one thing that Hoyland demonstrates is even in the early conquests, nobody really knew what to do with a defeated enemy who wanted to convert to Islam, particularly if they're, if they're not Arabic, right? Yeah. If, they're, if they're of a different ethnicity, what do you do with such a person? Can they convert? Can, we, can they fight for us? These are all questions that had to be sorted out. So the this, this 7th and 8th centuries are, are one of those muddy periods, and it's just sort of endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah no, I, I remember being fascinated, and it was it was sort of exhilarating, actually, because it was so kind of off the wall, honestly, the Krona Cook argument in Hagarism, which I'm only talking about because you kind of surprised me when you made reference to it. But if I recall correctly, and it's been a few years, 
you know, the, the strongest form of the argument was, was it, it methodologically involved is sort of like what happens if we actually do just set aside the Muslim sources as being late and therefore unhelpful? We'll just work with right. that kind of methodological prejudice. And so we just look at contemporaneous contemporary sources. We, so we're looking at, you know, Greek and Middle Persian and all that kind of stuff. And the picture that they at the time, this is the 70s, I guess, claimed emerged was a picture of al almost something that looked kind of like a Jewish irredentist movement, which, which is just kind of a crazy, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not how the formative period of, of Islam is understood by Muslims. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it has much broader purchase actually beyond that book, but it was a fascinating and kind of wild read speaking to, you know, the, you know, the, the kinds of things that can emerge depending on how you look at the evidence. Right. And, and, you know, Crone's work is excellent and the scholarship is so good. But that book made a huge splash, was a tremendously controversial. And, and she has, to some degree, kind of pulled back a, a little bit since then. And, you know, the problem is not to get too deep into the sort of the historiography of it is the argument has been made that those late Muslim sources actually have a much better provenance than we give them credit for because they're drawing on these earlier accounts and they're naming their earlier accounts and, and sketching coherently. So it's, you know, OK, this book has disappeared. We don't have it anymore but we've got four people referencing it. We think there actually was a book that talked about these things and the transmission of that information might be more legitimate than, than people have been willing to give it credit. So, but it's, but it's one of those great pieces. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing you look up that book and people are still mad about it. You know, they're, they're still arguing about it because you're dealing here. And this was a, you know, something I had to th think about a lot while writing this book. If you're going to study Jerusalem. You are getting into these sort of nuts and bolts of belief systems and, and they're, People have a lot at stake. And, and when you revise something, it's going to be controversial sort of no matter what you do. Yeah. So coming, coming back onto the, uh, to the timeline a bit. So um, Umar is successful. Jerusalem is in Arab and Muslim hands. And then it stays that way. For some centuries, there's sort of intra-Muslim turnovers from Sunni to Shia and sort of from, from Arab to Turk and so forth. Characterize this period before we get to the Crusades. What is it like to be in Jerusalem during these centuries? Well, I think it's mostly peaceful. Not, not to the sense that there, are, there is violence happening. Every city has strife in it. There's always problems, right? But for the stretch from 638 all the way until the really the, the late 11th century, a period of over 300 years, you don't have any major, there's no massacres, there's no major upheavals, no major civil wars or anything like that. You do have an unfortunate event in the in the 10th century, the, the burning of, it, of, a, of an Orthodox patriarch, which seemed to have been over a tax issue more than anything else, not over religion. But essentially, you have, you have people kind of living and working together, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And as you said, Sunni Shia, the dynamic, and you know, of course, that's another thing that takes time to develop Shiism and what it is in relief to, to Orthodox belief in Islam. But in general, you have not a lot of strife going on in the city, not until the year 1009, where you have this, this, this weird occasion where you have the, the caliph of Egypt, Al-Hakim, the mad caliph, as they call him, just goes on a terror and destroys the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, you know, and goes after pretty much everyone. And when I say that, it's, it's literally everyone. It's, it's the Jews, it's the Christians, it's Sunni Muslims. It's also some of his best friends and closest advisors massacring all these people. But other than that, this, this kind of strange event that is later you get this writing off of it in sources like, oh, wow, how could that happen? We need to fix this as soon as possible. We're glad that guy's gone, right? Until 1077, you don't have any kind of carnage in the city. You yeah. just really don't. And even then, when it happens, it's an act of retribution. 
one of the local warlords had taken the city and a group of insurgents inside town had kidnapped his family and held them hostage. So he comes back with his army and he, he puts them to the sword. But again, it's it's not religion. It's it's a personal matter. And so what I argue is that between the 7th and 11th centuries, when you do see violence in the city, it is due to other factors b- besides religion. They have to do with questions of economics or authority or, or vengeful actions, these sorts of things, but not I'm going to kill you because you believe something different. And um, that's right up to the beginning of the First Crusade. Well, this, this, is, this is my question here. So, what, John, what causes the First Crusade? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'll pass on that one, I think. <laughs> well, my answer to my students is if somebody tells you the one thing that caused the First Crusade, they're wrong. Um, and you can, you can write that person off because it's really a whole host of factors. And it's, there's a whole cottage industry of, of publishing on what caused the First Crusade. And the answer is really, it's, it's a whole bunch of different things. Fair enough. I, 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 it's hard to disagree. Of those things, which would you highlight as particularly worthy of, of our listeners' awareness? I'll be unpopular here with some of my colleagues. I, I tend to lean towards a bit more towards the traditional explanation, which is that these are wars mounted in, in what they perceive to be defensive of Christian lands. And there's a lot of problems with that statement I just said, and I'll acknowledge all of them. But there was some very important work done a few years ago by Peter Frankopin where he went into the Greek documents and he found the, the Byzantines were just soliciting military assistance at every level, not just from, from Rome, from the Pope, not just from the major political leaders out West, but from even the lower ranking magnates, making them promises, appealing for their assistance. We need soldiers to support ourselves against the Turks, right? But I think what happens is you've got a sensibility of we need to defend Christian lands not defend our fellow Christians necessarily because the Orthodox were seen as sort of alien, strange Christians, right? You know, they, they, they have their, their liturgy in Greek. That's, that's so strange. Why do they do that? They don't give allegiance to the Pope. Are they even Christians, right? So not necessarily to defend the people, but to, but to look at these lands and say, hey, I think those are Christian lands, or at least they used to be. And it's a, it's a righteous thing to go and, and get them back. And then Jerusalem figures very heavily into that equation. And there's a whole argument about when Urban II launched the First Crusade, how much was Jerusalem at the forefront of his thoughts? You know, was he, did he want the Holy City back specifically? Did he just generalize and say, well, we're going on this quest and by the way, we can get Jerusalem? How much does apocalypticism fit into that? Because we know some of the Crusade authors, the chroniclers, were expecting that when the physical Jerusalem is taken, you know, the, 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 the heavenly Jerusalem will descend. And, and some are willing to go as far as this is, you know, the, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. So I think at the end of the day, I think it's it's a war. It's an expeditionary war. Either defend territories you think should be yours or recover them because you you think you 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 unfairly lost them, even if you'd lost them hundreds of years ago. And I tend to look at that, that the military lens, even but even that is Everything I've just said is highly controversial sure. in specialist circles because then you get to the idea of, well, was this an offensive war? Was this a defensive war? Is this a holy war? What kind of holy war? And you go down all of these rabbit holes. But I think the one thing we can stand on is people were asking for assistance. Assistance was provided. And once the expedition sets out, they head straight for Jerusalem. So whether they figured that out on the way or if they had a grand scheme the whole time to take it back, they, you know, they're obviously bending their way down there. From the Muslim perspective, they look at it more in grand strategic terms. The earliest Muslim commenter says, this is an assault on Islam. 
first the Christians went to Sicily, then they went to Iberia, and now they're coming to the Levant. They're coming at us on all fronts. And I think that perspective you now merits serious discussion as well. So there are, there are aspects of all this that you know seem deeply familiar, like so much of what we've talked about is familiar, You know, depending on how you want to define a war. People have fought over Jerusalem slash are threatening to fight wars over Jerusalem through to the present day. And then there are aspects of, of the First Crusade that, that do seem, at least at first glance, you know, deeply alien. You know, who, if this is an expeditionary campaign, you know, who, who is mounting the campaign? You know, you know like, talk, like talk, this, this is like a social, mass social phenomenon on some level, in addition to being an act of politics, right? Who, who are the Crusaders? What does this army look like? How does it organize itself? Right, because it's not a regular standing force, right? So it's not like you just take your divisions and, you know, pack them up and, and send them to, you know, Saudi Arabia to, to work on Desert Shield, right? Sure. It's, it's generated through a call to arms by a, a Roman papacy, which at the time had significant power and influence over some secular governments. But the preaching is done, it's most famously done at Clermont in 1095 by Urban II, but then the bishops go out to every corner and they preach it to these local communities. And you have this great stirring of people from all different quarters. And then they, they, they equip themselves and they mortgage their properties for money and then eventually muster at particular locations and then move in different groups sort of towards the Holy Land. So it's not like we would think about in terms of expeditionary, certainly today, but it is across the water in a sense. It's 3000 kilometers away. And it's by this loose coalition of Christian, I suppose we could call them holy warriors, right? People fighting for God, getting the little cross stitched on the corner of their of their cloak, going and, and you know, and and doing God's work and sort of streaming there from all different directions. And then they they coalesce once they get to Constantinople. You see this because everybody goes to Constantinople first as the first major rally point. And there you see much more coherence, but even then you still don't have unity of command. You have several crusade leaders instead of one dominant personality leading the whole effort. So it's certainly not expeditionary like we would think of it today. But I would argue it's the medieval version of, I guess, you could almost call it the sort of multinational. Um, they're not heads of state on the first crusade, but they're, they're coming from these different regions, speaking different languages, all united by a, a common religion and a common, I think you could argue, cultural basis as well. Yeah. And just... If you would tell the story of what happens when this crusader army arrives in Jerusalem, what what do they actually achieve? What do they do? Yeah, it, it takes some time. They get there and they they don't have any supplies and they don't have any wood, so they can't actually mount an effective siege, which I think is great. As I tell my students, I mean, you, we always talk about all these big sieges and you see them in the movies. Where'd they get all the wood for those siege towers and battering rams, right? They don't have any. It takes them some time to find some wood and to build towers and rams and these sorts of things. And so it, it, it takes about a month of scurrying around to get the right materials. But eventually they do get into the city. They overtop the wall in the north, and then they, they come through the, the, the Zion Gate in the south. And then they stream into the city. And once they get in, if you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, it's anyone who's been there knows that sort of the tight confines of the streets. And, and you know, some of them today, you know, will underground and they'll, they'll go around these corners just really really tight and you get the sense of a defending garrison backing up through the streets and it's getting more and more crowded as they as they clash together and jam up in these big groups and the crusaders just come at them slicing and dicing it's just just right at them these are the remaining defenders of the city they they 
It's it's you just entered the city. The bloodlust is running high. Any semblance of command and control is really out the window. Even if you wanted to control your troops, I'm not sure how you do. And they push the garrison into the Temple Mount and basically slaughter them. About yeah. three thousand defenders. And when I say defenders, and we always say three thousand defenders. Three thousand, including the garrison, and then women and children and non-combatants who are all kind of massed together in one. And after this, you have now renewed Christian control of Jerusalem. What does Christian rule in Jerusalem look like? And then what is the strategic situation of the, I guess it's the Crusader kingdom, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, life is terrible in Jerusalem in the beginning. The, um, they throw out all the, the remaining Muslims and Jews who, who weren't killed in the siege are expelled. They're no longer allowed to live there. Some of them are ransomed. Some of them are just thrown out. So it's a Christian-only city, but the problem is, is most of the crusading host decides to go home. You've accomplished your objective. Jerusalem's in Christian hands. There will be a kingdom that is founded, and the host returns back to Western Europe. So strategically, you have this sort of outpost in the Levant. About Think about 3,000 crusaders stayed, and that's to defend a territory that stretches for over 300 miles north to south. Really from, you're talking about from Edessa in the north all the way down to, to Jerusalem and eventually down to, to Ascalon by the 1120s. That's not many people. So you're surrounded by hosts of enemies and, and you don't have the manpower to, to keep your city safe. The only thing the Christians have going in, in sort of in the, in, the, in the wind column is that the Muslim world likewise is, is divided and fractured and unable to mount any kind of united response. If it had been, I don't think the Crusaders would have been around very long. They would have been squelched pretty pretty quickly. But as it is, what happens is the call goes out for military assistance, right? More soldiers to come out to the east and to help defend these outposts. And people start pledging money and material support. You open up the trade routes because the First Crusade managed to acquire some ports along the way. So now you can bring in the ships and establish you know, mercantile contracts with the Italians and those sorts of things. So strategically, it is the fringes of Christendom. And it's a very weak fringe. It's going to collapse unless you continue to buttress it, find ways for it to survive. And for many of the crusaders, they discover, I think it's to their chagrin because they just hadn't really considered this. It involves making some friends in the region, not just with the the Eastern Christians that, that they think are a little weird, but with, with Muslim emirates who, you know, you might not like, but, but they can provide some kind of military support. You can strike a deal with them. So that ghost town of Jerusalem, very quickly, I point out in the book, you know, it goes maybe 20 years, maybe, not even, where Muslims are kept out of the city. Eventually, they start showing up again because you're going to need allies. You're going to need customers for your shops. You need a market in Jerusalem, and you're not going to have that unless you invite the non-Christians back. Yeah. So I'm, I'm conscious of our time here. So rather than going sort of crusade by crusade through the rest of your account, I mean, what what is to come here? And maybe you would come back and join us one day. We'll do a, a dedicated conversation of the of the Crusades. I mean, some of the some of the personalities that people will know are central figures, right? In the and the Crusades to come, Saladin, you know, Rich, Richard, the, Richard the Lionheart, right? All, all all of these figures. What as you talked sort of in broad terms about the Muslim period that precedes the the First Crusades, talk talk about the Crusader period. What are the what are the patterns? What are the major Muslim movements here that people should know about? Right. It's you're talking about a there's four of the so-called crusader states that are established. It's Jerusalem, Tripoli, Antioch, and Edessa. And the problem is, is you're surrounded by millions of Muslims. 
So as soon as the the Arabic forces or the or the Turkish forces or whoever's in the realm get their act together, they're going to be pressured very quickly. And so what happens is you have essentially this just kind of shrinking thing, right? By the 1140s, the county of Edessa has been recaptured by by Islamic forces. Antioch is under under constant pressure. Jerusalem gets pressure not only from from Syria, from places like Damascus, but also from Egypt, where where they managed to hold serve for a while, but but guys like Saladin eventually are going to rise up in Egypt and create much more powerful armies to attack the southern flank. So you've got this this shrinking concern that it, if it's going to survive, it has to be it has to be supplied. It has to have sufficient manpower. You have to have this the requisite devotion of the participants to stay and to fight. You need groups like the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, right, to form kind of the backbone of your army. But the, the, the real problem is, is, is because these lands are so separated, no one crusader state really has a sufficient army to, to defend the whole thing. And so sometimes you may have to send a few thousand soldiers north to help out Antioch, right? Or you might have to send them to the coast. You don't always have them on hand. And if the kingdom's army falls, that's by far the largest army in the region. If the kingdom of Jerusalem army falls, then all of those crusader states are unprotected. None of them can be defended. And that's the that's what happens in 1187 when Saladin wins his famous victory at the Battle of Hattin. He wipes out the, the kingdom's field army. And once he does, everything is for the taking because they simply don't have the combat power to, to hold them off. Yeah. Speaking of the Knights Templar, I, I have to say I, I I learned from your book and I, I did not know this. I should have known it. Like like any, you know, any good American of my 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 class and generation, I get all of my information about this period from movies and, and Umberto Echo novels. And so I did not know the Knights Templar, and you'll correct me if I get the details wrong here, but the the, the temple in the name comes from the the from Solomon's temple, which in practice, physically speaking, was the like occupied Alexa Mosque. Do I have that right? Yes. So they are the knights of the you know captured Alexa, which is called they call the Temple of Solomon. Not exactly accurately, but sort of literally in the neighborhood. And that is the order is dedicated to the protection of Alexa. I did not I did not realize that. Yeah, to the protection of the of their building, and then and then well, in their in their founding documents, protecting of the of the pilgrims, right, of the the passageways, the roads back and forth throughout the kingdom. Right? Yeah. But yeah, there's this level of confusion, which is striking, where they, they think the Al-Aqsa Mosque is the Temple of Solomon, and the Shrine of the Dome of the Rock, which is actually built probably on the site of the Temple of Solomon, they call the, the Temple of Domini, the Temple of the Lord, right? Yeah. And so there's this confusion, say, and that leads into a kind of a bigger discussion of how much did the Crusaders actually know about Islam? How much do they know about its holy buildings and its belief systems and all of that? And that's and that's a great discussion to have. Clearly, there's some who who know it very well. But if you imagine a mass of 10, 20,000 soldiers on the First Crusade and then subsequent armies, they really know very little about it. They're not reading Arabic, and that's the only way to get the Quran in the period. They don't know the belief systems. All they know are you know, stories about Muhammad and, you know, and certain things. But those those technicalities tend to elude them, and it's, it's a little humorous to us today. Yeah, absolutely. John Hostler, author of Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of War and Peace. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating book. I hope you'll come back sometime and we can we can talk about the crusade more 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 broadly. I'd love to. My pleasure. This is a nebulous media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.